While fighting raged at the front, loved ones back home waged their own battles. While worried about those in uniform, each day brought the additional burden of trying to cope with and find meaning to the all-consuming consequences of civil war. Here, the efforts, the people, and personalities of those on the northern home front. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. When the war came to Pennsylvania in 1863, a Gettysburg butcher sent his daughter Tilly Pierce south of town. As it turned out, he sent her into what would be the center of fighting on day two. On Jacob Weikert's farm near Little Round Top, she carried buckets of water to columns of soldiers and gave aid to those in need. Twenty-three years later, when she was 38, those experiences prompted her to write at Gettysburg, or what a girl saw and heard of the battle. Just one of countless civilian accounts that emerged from the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. Another, the 69-year-old War of 1812 veteran John Burns, who in 1863 was a cobbler, and who had served as constable and officer of court for the town of Gettysburg. On the first day of battle, he, wearing a long black coat and stovepipe hat, left his house and with his old flintlock musket moved to the west of town. The Iron Brigade welcomed his assistance. During the fight, he suffered three minor wounds, and some claim he shot two Confederates. His deeds drew such attention that later that year in November, visiting President Abraham Lincoln asked to meet him. Although he passed in 1872, to this day, he remains the citizen soldier of Gettysburg. And the oft-told story that centers around Jenny Wade. During the first days fighting at Gettysburg, she and her mother went to care for Jenny's sister, Georgia McClellan, who had just given birth for the first two days of the battle, they also aided Union soldiers in distress. Her story, Jenny, includes two more whose fates, as the story goes, became one with hers. Childhood friends Wesley Culp and Jenny's fiancé, Union soldier Jack Skelly. Unknown to Jenny, Skelly had been wounded two weeks earlier at the Second Battle of Winchester. There, Confederate Wesley Culp visited him and reportedly arrived in Gettysburg with a message from him for his family and most likely for Jenny. With a McClellan house on Baltimore Street precariously located between the lines, it took fire from both armies. By the end of the second day's fighting, the house had been pelted by some 150 bullets. On that second day, Culp entered the town but could not slip away to visit. He never would. 
The next morning, July 3rd, around 8 a.m., the story goes he was killed on Culp's Hill, on land owned by his cousin and on ground where he, again reportedly, had played as a child. About a half hour later, around 8.30, Jenny stood before a biscuit dough tray while her mother started a fire at the stove. Outside, down the street, a Confederate sniper fired. His bullet missed its intended target and plowed through the outside door of the McClellan house, through an inner door that separated parlor and kitchen, then struck Jenny in the back just below the left shoulder blade, piercing her heart. Nine days later, Jack Skelly died of his wound. Culp, Wade, and Skelly all passed without knowing the tragic fate of each. Indeed, stories from the northern home front abound, but admittedly, not to the extent of the southern experience because, quite simply, the war was fought almost exclusively in the Confederacy. So, to gain perspective on the northern home front, we have to look at an area that, in many respects, experienced the war as a distant and removed event. As we do, let's begin by making one thing clear. Despite what many are told and believe, the North was not united in its support for waging the conflict. For example, August 1861, Stepney, Connecticut. Under a banner that read, Peace, and in protest of the unrighteous war, citizens gathered. Just as the main speaker stepped forward, a column of carriages, horsemen, and shouting pedestrians appeared from neighboring Bridgeport. Supporters of the war effort, confrontation morphed quickly into clash. Driving the peace faction away, the mob returned to Bridgeport, where they marched to the Bridgeport Farmer, a pro-Southern paper, and destroyed its press. Another reality, at the beginning of the war in both North and South, local, state, and regional allegiances were far stronger than national. Mr. Lincoln's Union, 20 million people spread over 21 states at the beginning of the war, was a region of great expanse and, in particular, in the midst of great change. One-fifth of its population foreign-born, enough to create tension with native-born. The black population, slightly less than 1%. Predominantly rural, three-fourths of the Union's population in 1860 still lived on farms or in small towns. But a major shift to the cities was underway. Despite the fact that the majority were farmers, mechanization was the rage. So much so that, again in 1860, manufactured products first surpassed the value of farm products. It was in the Northeast where developing industries flourished, six times as many as the South, and almost 12 times as many factory workers. Massachusetts alone produced 60% more manufactured goods than the entire Confederacy. In food production, the Midwest contributed enough to feed the North's 20 million and, with the surplus, those in Europe. Linked by some 22,000 miles of rail, the Northeast and Northwest were tied economically 
But from the agrarian Midwest, particularly Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana, three who had traded with the South came descent. Its human embodiment was Clement Vallandigham. When the war began, he, at 40 years of age, was in his second term as a Democratic congressman from Dayton, Ohio. Like his nation, his party, the Democrats, were split. War Democrats supported the war, and Peace Democrats, copperheads as they were called, denounced Lincoln's war policy, emancipation, and demanded a negotiated peace. Vallandigham, called Valiant Val, the Midwestern sectionalist and state's right champion, believed slavery was constitutionally legitimate and wanted to preserve, as he put it, the Constitution as it is, the Union as it was. Republicans and War Democrats most certainly noted his stand when in 1862 he introduced a bill to imprison the 16th President of the United States. In spring of 1863, while running for governor of Ohio, his anti-war, anti-administration blasts ran afoul of the new commander of the Department of the Ohio, Major General Ambrose Burnside. Headquartered in Cincinnati, Burnside warned, and when Vallandigham ignored, Burnside acted. At 2 a.m., on May the 5th, 1863, Union soldiers smashed down Vallandigham's door and under guard escorted him to Cincinnati. There, the next day, he stood trial before a nine-man military commission, which found him guilty and sentenced him to a military prison for the duration of the war. President Lincoln commuted the sentence, but did banish him to the Confederacy, where no one there really knew what to do with him. In June of 63, he eventually boarded a blockade runner in Wilmington, North Carolina, made his way to Bermuda, and then to Canada. Yes, the war did not unite all 20 million. And in that divided realm, rumors of secret societies were rife. One was the Knights of Golden Circle. Founded in 1854, it was committed to the extension of slavery into territory that would encircle the Gulf of Mexico coast. Lodges were reported everywhere across the north. Its significance was not so much that it undermined the war effort, but groups like these did create a climate of fear which chipped away at civil rights. Like in Haverhill, Massachusetts, where the editor of a pro-Confederate weekly was tarred and feathered and carried through town on a rail. His life threatened, the mob forced him to his knees to apologize. That incident was not isolated. In Indiana, the Jerseyville Democratic Union called Lincoln a worse traitor than Jefferson Davis. The editor of the Newark Evening Journal was arrested, convicted, and fined for his southern leanings. In June of 1863, even the Chicago Times was shut down for two days. During the war, more than 20 northern and border state papers were suppressed for varying periods of time. Lincoln eventually relaxed restraints, but as for citizens, between 1861 and 1863 alone, Union authorities arrested some 13,000. No question, 
The first months of unprecedented civil war brought unprecedented executive power. Example, on April the 27th, 1861, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus in Maryland. The announcement of a draft of militiamen in 1862 sparked arrests. One was 60-year-old Congressman Dr. Edson Oles of Lancaster, Ohio. In September of 1862, opposition was so severe. On the 24th, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus throughout the Union, and reaction was swift. In a Maryland court, Chief Justice Roger Tawney ruled that the president had overstepped his constitutional bounds. Like Andrew Jackson back in the 1830s, Lincoln ignored the decision. For the record, neither the Supreme Court nor Congress curbed Lincoln's power during the war. The North's most troubling issue was what to do with African Americans and the institution of slavery. Again, the North was not a united bastion for emancipation, for equality. Except for the most enlightened whites, blacks were thought shiftless and inferior. Indiana and Illinois were two of other states that once had local statutes that forbade freemen to take up residence. Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire were the only northern states where blacks could vote on a par with whites. Not surprisingly, segregation was the norm. And sadly, far too often, there were strong words and violence. In December of 1862, Governor Israel Washburn of Maine argued that blacks should be allowed to serve so that, as he put it, Sambo could spare the lives of white boys. On the issue of slavery, the president, not wanting to antagonize slaveholding border states, moved cautiously. He first proposed that border state slaveholders receive a $400 compensation for each freed slave and suggested that those freemen should receive federal assistance in relocation outside the country. Now, Congress did, the same month as Washburn's suggestion, abolish slavery in Washington City. But D.C. slaveholders were compensated. And relocation to another country was again suggested. One northern city had strong economic ties with the South, and that was New York City. With an 1860 population of 816,000, the nation's most populous, its Wall Street was quite honestly the South's broker and banker. One-third of the nation's exports and two-thirds of its imports moved through New York City's harbor. And not surprisingly, more southern cotton moved through New York City than any other Atlantic seaport. So much so that in January of 1861, Mayor Fernando Wood urged New York City to declare itself a free city and do business with both sides. Even though New York State had outlawed slavery, New York City was a hotbed of pro-slave sentiment, and along the four-mile avenue known as Broadway and throughout the city, the potentially troublesome Democratic Party ruled. Most of the city's 13 papers were anti-Lincoln, but that did change 
when Confederate shots were fired on Fort Sumter. Answering the president's call for troops by the end of 1861, the city did raise 50-plus regiments and did so despite abundant rumors that the absence of southern cotton would mean the sprouting of grass in New York City streets. Indeed, the South owed $300 million to northern merchants, an amount that largely had to be written off. At the start, times were bad. Obviously, southern customers dwindled. Banks that depended on cotton collapsed. And with the Mississippi closed to northern traffic, the economic mood up north was gloomy. All that meant that, again at first, there was financial crises. But by mid-1862, it was over, thanks in part to assistance from Washington City, aided by one who had no previous financial experience, the Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon Chase. Before the war, the United States Treasury collected its money from land sales and customs. Chase, thinking like many the war would be short, raised $80 million by taxation and the sale of bonds and treasury notes. But it wasn't enough. The war went on far longer than anyone imagined. To illustrate how bad things were early on, almost 6,000 businesses failed in 1861 alone. Corn prices sank, iron production dropped, private citizens hoarded specie. Fearful, former Buffalo banker Congressman Elbridge Spaulding controversially proposed that the United States government issue currency not backed by gold or silver. Treasury Secretary Chase, a hard money man, was wary. But in February of 1862, the first of several legal tender acts authorized the printing of greenback currency. During the war, $450 million was issued. It was accepted in every way, save collection of import duties and interest due on bonds. The chief concern was inflation. And indeed, there was fear when prices started to rise and average wages lagged. Purchasing power was compromised, but it was not crippling. One reason was that Congress passed tax legislation that soaked up a great deal of the inflationary currency. That tax in August of 1861 was the first income tax ever levied by the United States government, 3% on all income over $800. On July the 1st, 1862, Congress passed another internal revenue measure, and it taxed almost everything. Excise taxes on luxuries, license taxes, taxes on legal documents, inheritance, and value-added taxes. Through those taxes, the North raised 21% of its revenue, 13% by printing paper money. Conversely, the Confederacy raised just less than 5% through taxes and 60% by issuing paper money. Confederate disasters, however, meant the inflation rate in the South reached a staggering 9,000%. The North, only 80%. Military contracts helped to spark economic growth. And perhaps surprisingly, one beneficiary of wartime prosperity was those who worked the land. 
All the more amazing since one-third of northern farmers were soldiers. Labor-saving devices like mowers, reapers, cultivators, and planters. Manpower replaced by horsepower and the introduction of commercial fertilizers sparked this economic evolution. Before mechanization, a farmer with a scythe could cut an acre of hay per day with a horse-drawn mower ten times as much. And that meant the North put more acreage under production than ever before. And more land was made available when in 1862 Congress passed the Homestead Act. It allowed a farmer to gain title to 160 acres of public land if he worked it for five years. By war's end, some 2.5 million acres of prairie and plain land had been homesteaded. 15,000 new farms were set up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Kansas, and Nebraska, and that led to record wheat production in 1862 and again in 1863. So much that farms managed to feed Union troops and civilians and double exports to Europe in exchange for gold. And enabling those transactions, the most visible sign of America's growth and industrial might, the railroad. From 1862 to 1865, three of the four major east-west trunk lines, the Erie, New York Central, and Pennsylvania, made unprecedented profit. The B&O did not make that list for its proximity to war zones. The Erie stock skyrocketed from $17 per share to $126.5. The Atlantic and Great Western was the one major expansion during the war. Although its main line ran from Salamanca, New York, to Dayton, Ohio, with connecting lines, one could travel from New York City to St. Louis in 44 hours. That route of 1,000-plus miles became the then longest unbroken journey in America. Another railroad development during the war, the standardization of gauges. Before, eight different gauges existed, from a width of four feet, eight and one-half inches, to six feet. But in 1864, when the Transcontinental Railroad was begun, all went to the narrowest gauge. In other areas of life, no question, the war imposed restrictions, but with them, opportunity. Women, in particular, found new economic and societal roles, and the war forced innovation. For example, an axe producer in 1860 switched to making sabers, or a carriage maker to United States Army wagons. Not surprisingly, the number of factories increased and many made use of inventions like the shoe stitching machine and sewing machine. In the clothing business, standard sizes were conceived. And incredibly, with little if any southern cotton, woolen mills still grew in number. Textile stockholders were rewarded with annual dividends anywhere from 10 to 40%. Though the paper industry suffered at first from the lack of cotton, rag, straw, wood pulp, and corn husk worked just as well. On a small tributary of the Allegheny River in northwestern Pennsylvania, a most unexpected source of wealth. In the summer of 1859, 
a 39-year-old former railroad conductor, Edwin Drake, drilled down some 69 feet and struck this country's first oil gusher. He got 20 barrels a day, and soon thereafter, Oil Creek had 74 new wells. At first, there was overproduction, but by the end of 1862, prices soared. One owner made $2.5 million in 15 months. Yes, even in Civil War, there was money to be made, and certain enterprising individuals jumped into the frenzy. Like a young Scot named Andrew Carnegie, who at 12 years of age first came to America in 1848. Here in the States, he worked as a bobbin boy in a textile factory. During the war, he was a telegraph operator and superintendent with the Pennsylvania Railroad. In 1861, he made enough to invest in the Columbia Oil Company. With his dividends, he paid for a substitute to avoid the draft and reinvested his money in the steel industry. Well, he did well. Then there was the 23-year-old son of a patent medicine salesman, John D. Rockefeller, who realized there was no major refinery near the oil fields. With money he made from inflated food prices, he too bought a substitute and with four partners went to Cleveland, where they set up a refinery on the Cuyahoga River. It became Standard Oil. Not all won their financial laurels by the sweat of their own brow. Take J. Pierpont Morgan, who launched his banking career in 1861 and amassed great profit by manipulating gold prices and by other means, some most questionable. In 1863, he paid $300 for a commutation fee rather than be drafted. And just as calculating, Jay Gould, who thanks to a government agent, was informed before the public of Union victory or defeat. In Wall Street's gold room, Union victory deflated gold prices. Defeat made them rocket. So able to anticipate stock market reaction, Gould reaped huge profits. Both Morgan and Gould were not the only ones to reap tainted profit. Several learned, as many have done in countless conflicts, that war is mighty good business. And as always, with booming times and great profit, there was corruption. Bribes to congressmen, conflicts of interest, private contractors who defrauded the government. One Arthur Eastman offers the perfect example. He bought old but still serviceable rifles from the War Department for $3.50 apiece, then sold them to a Simon Stevens for $12.50 apiece, who in turn sold them back to the War Department for $22 apiece. Bottom line? 600% profit. Corruption also came in the form of trading with the enemy. Not only Union generals slipping stocks of cotton northward. One woman in Tennessee was stopped as she made her way toward Confederate lines. Under her skirt and tied to her girdle, authorities found 12 pairs of boot, each stuffed with medicine and whiskey. 
In fact, we today have a term from the period that originated from fraud. Some contractors sold flimsy material that literally fell apart in the rain. The material was called shod, and thus we use the term shoddy for poorly made products. We believe that one-fifth of all United States Army purchases were indeed tainted by corruption. We also know that the gap between rich and poor widened during the war, thanks in part to a new business phenomenon, the focus of economic power in fewer but larger corporations. In other words, the drift toward monopoly. Yes, there were some in the North who made use of a daring spirit that in the midst of civil war began to flex its economic muscle. And yet, we must stress that those who did were few and atypical. The vast majority shared the life-changing process that was the evolution from citizen to soldier. Eighteen days after Bull Run, 91,000 men enlisted. By November of 1861, 500,000. After Union victories in early 1862 at Forts Henry, Donaldson, and Shiloh, word went out that no more were needed. But by July of 1862, Lincoln asked for 300,000 more three-year volunteers. One month later, volunteer numbers sank. So much so that in August of 1862, Congress authorized a draft of militia, as we noted earlier, to fill the numbers of any state that didn't meet its volunteer quota. Managed by the individual states, men 18 to 45 years of age could be conscripted. It was meant to stimulate volunteering. Instead, its listed exemptions created controversy. Occupational exemptions included judges, telegraph operators, railroad engineers, skilled munition workers in public arsenals, etc., etc. Medical exemptions included heart or lung disease, hemorrhoids or chronic diarrhea, hernia, loss or imperfect vision of the right eye, loss of front teeth or molars, more than one finger of the right or more than two fingers of the left hand. And yes, if you're wondering, some maimed themselves to escape the draft. One particular exemption, though, spurred bitter class resentment. The purchasing of a substitute for $300 prompting the cry, rich man's war, poor man's fight. $300? Today, that would be just over $8,100. The hiring of substitutes even created a new business. Professional brokers provided substitutes for a fee and found many of their potential substitutes in slums or dive taverns. Even substitutes developed an entrepreneurial spirit. They enlist as a substitute, then desert to sell their services to another. Take John O'Connor, who enlisted and jumped 32 times before he was finally court-martialed and sentenced to a four-year prison term. Usually, an exemption was available for anyone who could pay for it. For example, to illustrate, in Fairfield, Connecticut, 62 men were drafted. 
five, each paying $300 to $500, bought a substitute. The rest bought medical exemptions at $75 apiece. It was such a scam that disgusted editors published their names under a coward's list. Some draftees fled to Canada or Europe. Now, admittedly, the 1862 draft was clumsily constructed. Some questioned its constitutionality. Future drafts would be administered in Washington City. And that came in 1863 with a call for another 300,000 men. Exemptions this time included those physically unfit and insane. The insane inclusion prompted a Pennsylvania editor to remark that the measure was, as he put it, unquestionably for the benefit of the abolitionists, who are all as crazy as March hares. And yet again, there were exemptions for those who could provide a substitute or pay a $300 commutation fee. Though the fee was finally dropped in 1864, the United States' first draft was extremely controversial, tough to administer, and wide open for unbelievable schemes to escape the fate of the draft as defined by the lottery wheel. Some rubbed sand in their eyes to feign conjunctivitis, smoked or drank heavily to produce symptoms of heart disease. Some hired mothers, in quotations, to testify they were needed at home. Draft officials were bribed. Enrollment officers were bought and bullied. And many times, if one found himself on the draft rolls, he took out his frustration on those he blamed for the war itself, African Americans. As the Meadville, Pennsylvania Crawford Democrat put it, the common worker of the North was willing to fight for Uncle Sam, but not for Uncle Sambo. And in large cities where black ghettos existed, angry northern blue-collar workers violently targeted them. By 1862, there had been violence in half a dozen northern cities. In Brooklyn, Detroit, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and the setting for Martin Scorsese's 2002 film, the gangs of New York. There, in New York City's five points and during the summer of 1863, it exploded. Only eight days after the Union victory at Gettysburg, 1,236 names were drawn from several precincts in the city. The next day, Sunday, July 12th, along with a list of the casualties from that battle, the names of those drafted were published in the morning papers. The common New Yorker and the lowly Irish, those who couldn't buy their way out, blamed African Americans for their misfortune. And on Monday the 13th, they reacted. And it was ugly. An estimated mob of three to 5,000 on 3rd Avenue and 46th Street headed for 2nd Avenue. Any black found became a potential victim. Another mob gathered on 5th Avenue and 43rd Street. They surged toward the orphan asylum for colored children. With incensed shouts of racial invectives, they attacked, looted, and burned the orphanage to the ground. Amazingly, the 237 children housed there, all under the age of 12, escaped. 
Authorities reacted to the crisis, but their numbers were wanting. On July the 14th, Colonel Henry O'Brien, who led a military detachment, was cornered, beaten, and stoned to death by the mob. His lifeless body was then dragged through the streets. The city, a stage for angry, violent, racial, and class war. Blacks were hunted down, lynched. Five veteran regiments, including the famed 7th New York, were dispatched. Artillery rolled in, and right down 5th Avenue, rounds of canister were fired into surging mobs. By Thursday the 16th, with 4,000 soldiers in the city, the worst riots in the history of this country finally sputtered out. In four days, some 119 were dead, 306 injured, and $1.5 million in property damage. One month later, the draft resumed there, but this time with 43 regiments in the city. Smaller draft riots did occur elsewhere. The most noteworthy in Boston, but nothing matched New York City. In retrospect, the 1863 draft was a disaster. 292,441 were called. 13% failed to report. Of the 87% that did, 65% received exemptions. Therefore, 88,171 names remained. Of those, just under 60% paid the $300 commutation fee. Thus, the 1863 draft netted 35,883, Another 5% or so were hired substitutes. Without question, it was the most controversial aspect in the North during the war. But what of the majority who, with loved ones far away, supported the war? Those who genuinely wanted to help to serve in some way. One individual, R.C. Gridley, an Austin, Nevada Territory merchant, who by losing a local election bet made good on his promise to lug a 20-pound sack of flour a mile through town. When he emerged from his store on April the 20th, 1864, a crowd and band had gathered to watch him. After the deed was done, all gathered in a local tavern where Gridley decided to auction off his sack of flour, then turned the proceeds over to the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which directed medical supplies and services to Union soldiers. On the spot, his idea expanded. Someone could buy his sack, then give it back to him, and he could sell it again and again. That afternoon of the 20th, he collected $4,000 and decided to take his plan on the road. At a mining camp, Near the wildly successful Comstock load, he took in $6,000. In Virginia City, he collected $13,000. And in Sacramento and San Francisco, another 5000 
Eventually, he and his sack of flour made it to St. Louis. Gridley collected over $70,000, just one of thousands who contributed to the war effort. However, despite good intent, efforts did on occasion go awry. For example, hundreds of ladies made thousands of Havelocks and sent them to the front. The donated apparel was intended to hang downward from a kepi to protect one's neck, but it stopped when the women realized the men, unsure what to do with them, were using them as nightcaps. And then there was the 93-year-old woman from Duxbury, Massachusetts. She deserves mention. She knitted worsted stockings. As a child, she did the same for George Washington's soldiers at Valley Forge. And yes, even after death, there were acts of humanity. Many physicians refused to send bills to widows of soldiers killed in action. Many mobilized and many organized. Mary Livermore, George Templeton Strong, Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman trained as a physician in the United States, and others re-energized an organization that Florence Nightingale first created during the Crimean War. In this instance, our own version in this country, the United States Sanitary Commission. Its mission? To pull together all the far-flung local and state societies and place them under one central authority. Frederick Law Olmsted, the man who designed New York City's Central Park, was the commission's first executive secretary. His and the organization's first and most extreme challenge was to overcome the stagnant leadership of the United States Army's Medical Bureau. That finally done, the commission organized a corps of sanitary inspectors who traveled from Union camp to camp. There, the organization distributed some $15 million worth of stores to United States soldiers in the field and even in Confederate prison camps. Its organized wagon trains were known as flying depots. From them, a remarkable transport service to evacuate the sick and wounded from war fronts. Commission member Dr. Elisha Harris designed a hospital car in which litters were supported by rubber cords. And those cords minimized jostling that made transporting the wounded tortuous. Among their many contributions, the Sanitary Commission also launched campaigns to collect and distribute potatoes and onions, which, when eaten raw, proved a cure for scurvy. They set up a claims office to help soldiers that sought pensions or back pay, set up canteens for soldiers on troop trains, established soldiers' homes which served as temporary lodging for men in transit, and published a directory of patients receiving treatment in every general hospital. A stat to showcase the Sanitary Commission's invaluable aid. At Gettysburg alone, the Commission distributed more than 60 tons of food and a multitude of items that included 10,000 shirts, 4,000 pairs of shoes, and 110 barrels of bandage material. Donations, however, kept the Commission on its feet for only so long. Eventually, money-making schemes were required. Mary Livermore and a colleague, Jane Hogue, came up with a perfect idea, the sanitary fair. 
In various northern cities, solicited articles were displayed and sold for charity. The first fair was October the 27th, 1863, in the city of Chicago. The event began with a three-mile-long parade through the city. An admission fee of 75 cents allowed one to tour exhibition buildings and get them a meal. That first fair ran for two weeks, and over 5,000 a day attended. One donation was truly a treasure. Lincoln's original draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. It sold for $3,000. All told, the organizers of the Chicago Sanitary Fair netted more than three times their goal. And so successful was the Chicago Sanitary Fair, others copied it. All total, these fairs raised more than $4 million. And that money and countless donations allowed the United States Sanitary Commission to estimate that it raised and dispensed more than $25 million in aid. The total from all sources of aid came to at least $70 million. Such was the lasting effort of civilian relief, a factor that did help to unify the northern population. Though the North and South were at war, there was one element on both home fronts that was universal— common people with loved ones far away, those who opened letters to hear from their own from the front or congregated before newspaper offices and general stores to read the posted news of battles and scan the casualty list, praying that a name would not be found. In that respect, in both North and South, as in all wars, and regardless of nation and century, the majority, the common folk, living in a divided land, were truly united. For our next episode, we'll head south, where the war was almost exclusively fought. We'll focus and detail stories about its people, many of them who far too often found themselves in the paths of campaigning armies. Next time we gather, the Southern Home Front. As a former teacher in the public school system, it is always satisfying to learn that former students have been productive with their lives, that they are giving back, and they and their families are doing well. That's why it is with particular pleasure that we welcome Tom Frazier, of Fort Mill, South Carolina, as a new patron to our ranks. Thank you, Tom, for your kind words and for your support in what we here at Threads from the National Tapestry are trying to do. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.